for me, it's really looking at consumers, looking at retailers, looking at brands, what they're all doing, and trying to figure out what are those opportunities that they're not satisfying now. You brought up local. There's a lot of local companies that are very happy not selling the Walmarts of the world, but just selling the 200 supermarkets that are in their local environment. And you can have a really good business that way. And you don't need to have 100 employees or 200 employees. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looking Forward, opportunities for job, career, business, and investment seekers. If that describes you, then this is the podcast for you. If you're a freelancer, a startup or small business, a well-established company, a nonprofit, or even someone thinking about a second or possibly a third career, this is for you too. You see, here in Looking Forward, we focus on global trends in the future, but most importantly, on the opportunities they're creating. Our guest experts will not only tell you about those opportunities, they will also give you some tips to help you take the first steps toward capitalizing on them. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. Hi, everybody. Do you know what have been some of the biggest changes in food manufacturing and retailing since COVID arrived? How about what kinds of opportunities that might be creating for you, whether right now or in the near future? If this is of interest to you, you will definitely want to hear what my guest expert, Phil Lempert, the supermarket guru, has to say on this episode of Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers. To learn more about Phil, listen to the episode and check the show notes. And please, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Okay, let's get started. Well, hi, Phil. Welcome back to Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's a delight to have you back. You are one of my favorite guests partly because of the topic, but mostly because of Phil Lempert. Because you know your stuff, you're articulate. And as I said off the air, but I'm going to let everybody know, Phil's a great guy to work with. Phil, for those who haven't heard your first appearance, because you are a returning veteran to Looking Forward, how did you become an expert on food manufacturing and retailing? What led you to this? And I know there's family in this. I was birthed into it. <laughs> my grandfather was a dairy farmer in New Jersey. My father was a food manufacturer and then a food broker. So it was just a natural evolution. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to focus a little differently than they had. So I always describe myself as being in the center of a triangle. And each point of the triangle represents a brand, represents a retailer, and represents the consumer. And my job, frankly, is to make sure that every point of the triangle knows what the other one is thinking and doing. Wow. So you're covering the whole gamut really here. You're not just looking at it from one vantage point, but you wanted to look at it from several. And part of the advantage that you had was you had a father and a grandfather of blessed memory who were looking at it from different perspectives as well, correct? Exactly. When we had you on last, and I should have double-checked this, Phil, but I think it was about two years ago or so. So we were in the thick of COVID. 
Lots happened since then. Every industry, it seems, or most all industries are dynamic. Certainly, the industries that you're covering fall into that category. What are some of the big trends that you are seeing now in both food manufacturing and retailing that you could share with us? Well, certainly since COVID, everything has changed. What happened, which is probably the most important thing, is for the first time ever, the average shopper heard the term supply chain. They had never heard that before. And when they really went into supermarkets and they saw empty shelves, they freaked out. They didn't know what to expect. So from a retailer standpoint, everything has changed. Certainly more people are ordering online. It's going more to pickup than delivery because no retailer can make any money on delivery. And I'm talking globally. First of all, it's not just about what's going on here in the U.S., but if you look at Tesco in the U.K., you look at Albert Hind, you look at Woolworths in Australia, you look at all these retailers, it's changed substantially. And also what's happened is they had to throw a lot of money against technology that they never anticipated doing. Yes, we've all seen those plastic shields that have gone up at the cash registers. That's the easy stuff. But it's really building that infrastructure from a technological standpoint that was really challenging and continues to be challenging for these retailers. Now, from a food manufacturing standpoint, there's really three basic issues that they've had to deal with. Number one is climate change. And when we look at climate change, what we have to understand, and I'm in California, we've just gone through a series of floods, if you would, since December. That affects our growing season. It affects how much food we can grow. So what manufacturers have had to do is find new sources of ingredients from around the globe. We also have a major problem called the Ukraine-Russia war, which not only has affected wheat and edible oils, but also it's really clogged up the waterways. So we haven't been able to get a lot of imports from that part of the world to the U.S., So as a result of that, manufacturers have had, again, either to resource materials, but retailers really stood up and started having more store brands on their shelves than ever before. We look at this Kroger Albertsons pending deal, and what that's going to create is the third largest CPG brand in the U.S. because they're going to have over 35,000 private label items. We've got the climate situation. We have the war, and then we have a major labor problem. So labor's in two parts. One is we have a lot of people who don't want to work in supermarkets or in poultry factories anymore and make $11 an hour. I was just with Randy Edeker, who's the chairman of Hy-Vee in the Midwest, and pre-pandemic, they had 90,000 associates. Now, they're down 15,000 associates. So they only have 75,000 and they're not able to operate their stores. So they're throwing more money at it, more training at it. But still, they have a huge labor problem, which is forcing them into more automation, more AI, more robotics. And we're seeing the same problem globally. So we've got a labor problem and both in-store, in manufacturing and in trucking. We're down about 100,000 long-haul truck drivers in the U.S. And what that has forced manufacturers to do is rethink how they distribute food. 
So pre-pandemic, I build a factory in the middle of the country, a million square foot, and then I have trucks bringing it all over the country. Well, now these manufacturers are thinking very differently. Instead of one factory, they might have to have five or 10 factories smaller dotted throughout the country so that they can have a truck deliver to their retailers within an hour or two hours because we can't justify long-haul trucking anymore. So those are the major factors of what has happened since the pandemic. Boy, Phil, you, you talked about so many things there. I could think of a dozen questions. But let me just, first of all, say to everybody who's not in the industry, when Phil says CPG, he means consumer packaged goods. Okay. Now, going back to first the online shopping, I myself am mostly doing online shopping now. I didn't realize that has become rather pervasive. Yeah, at the height of the pandemic, about 15% of all sales were going through online, most of that delivery. It's now dropped to about 7%. And frankly, what retailers want to do is they want to divorce themselves from Instacart or Shipt or other third parties, and they want to do it themselves. And what they want you to do is go online, order online, and then pick it up yourself. The problem that a lot of shoppers have is when they get their bills for delivery, they're having heart attacks because you've got a service fee or you've got an annual subscription. You're being urged and in some cases forced to tip. You're not able to use your frequent shopper card. So you're not getting deals. You can't use coupons. So a lot of people found that during the pandemic, they were spending 30, 35% more for their groceries. And now that things have eased up and people are going back into stores and want to go back into stores, they're discovering that the easiest way to do it is spend 20 minutes, go online, order it, and then swing by the store and pick it up. Pick it up outside of the store, Phil, or actually go into the store? It depends on the supermarket. Some you have to go inside. Some, when you get there, they have geo-tracking and they know you pulled into the parking lot and they'll bring it out to your car. It really depends on the chain. Okay. And something else that you were talking about, I want to ask you about, which is now that retailers have had a challenge in getting food from certain manufacturers because of trucking issues and so forth, are they purchasing more what is being called farm-to-table kind of food? So they're going more to the local producers of produce than maybe they were before. Maybe somebody in my area, Pennsylvania, was going to California. Maybe now, if they can get it here, they're getting it here. Has there been any change there? Absolutely. And you bring up a really good point because local pre-pandemic was thought of as, oh, yeah, we want to support the local community and so on. But it, it really became a necessity for a lot of retailers to be able to get local products, to stock local products. And consumers like that. They really do. So what a lot of retailers now have is they have sections to their stores just for local products. They're marking them, they're flagging them that they're local. And it really brings a good sense of community to those shoppers and to the retailer. So yes, we're definitely seeing more local products than ever before. Bill, part of buying food pre-COVID was where a store would do it. And I'm thinking of, as the obvious example, Trader Joe's. It was an experience. You went in there and the 
person would hand you a cube of cheese and you'd love it, blah, blah, blah. Where does that stand nowadays since more people are just going online, they punch in, I admit I'm one of these people again, and then I just drive to my parking spot at the store and then I leave. Where is that these days? We're back to having more experiences. You mentioned the sampling. Sampling has changed. Sampling is still very effective. When you sample a product in a store, sales typically go up about 400%. Wow. So it's a very valuable tool for a manufacturer and for a retailer. But now you're not seeing a piece of cheese. You're seeing a piece of cheese that's wrapped in a cellophane package (laughs) so that people feel safe about it. Definitely seeing more retailers putting a lot more money into the experience. We've seen Kroger do it. We've seen some Albertsons do it. In the Chicago area, you know, Dom's Market is a new one that just came up. All experience here in Southern California, Erwan, again, all experience. In fact, Tony Antaki, who's the owner of Erwan, and I had a conversation because they're small stores. They're about 10,000 square foot versus about 40,000 square foot for your typical store, conventional store. What he did is he has very narrow aisles and very high shelving. So I asked him about that. And he said, well, the aisles are narrow so that people, customers physically bang into each other. (laughs) What he wants to do is, again, create a community. And it's done very well. And the reason for the high shelves is he wants customers to have to ask their employees. And all their employees are full-time. They have no part-time employees Mm. as a conventional store has. Customer has to ask the store employee to get them the thing that's on the top shelf. So again, he's driving it as a community interaction and being more experiential than ever before. Very creative and fascinating to hear that approach, Phil. Thanks for sharing that. You talked a little bit about not just the United States, but the rest of the world. And you said the experiences that people are feeling here in the United States, it's happening in other places around the world too. Are there any differences, Phil, that you might be able to tease out of that? Sure. A major difference, which is really antithetical, is that especially in Europe, they take a much more serious approach to health and wellness than we do. So if you take a look, the average supermarket here all have little shelf tags, dietitians' picks, number schemes to show what's healthy. But you go into Europe and what you're finding is they have actually banned certain ingredients that we use all the time. There's no high fructose corn syrup outside of the U.S. You look at the red and the yellow dyes. They're not in any of those candies that, that are sold over there. Organic is truly organic, not the faux organic that we've got. So really, when I look at Europe and Australia in particular, those two areas of the world, they're much stricter as it relates to health and wellness and ingredients than we are. Asia is not quite there yet, but I think that they will be. South America is not, with the exception of Mexico, who's done a phenomenal job of really reducing sugar out of people's diets. And what they've done is they've labeled products with a skull and crossbones. A lot of the, a lot of the soda products that are on their shelves, just telling people don't consume sugar. And 
They had one of the highest obesity rates, highest consumption of sugar globally. And they've been able to really reduce that by communicating very effectively with shoppers. Bill, I have very bittersweet feelings about what you said. (laughs) The sweet part about it is I'm really happy to hear that these other countries are doing that. And I applaud Mexico because I know diabetes has been a big challenge with that, with the diet there. On the other hand, the bitter part is I don't know why we're so slow to catch on to this. And we may get into that. I had a guest, Dr. Robert Lustig. You may know Robert. He's the author of the book Metabolical, talked about the dangers of processed foods. I'm all about uh, watching out for sugar. I've had to do that for 30 years. I just had another guest on Healthcare on the Horizon, and she spoke about, believe it or not, the potential impact therapeutically of watching one's diet, certain foods, as it relates to epilepsy treatment. So it's just amazing how much we're learning about diet. And I'm glad to hear about these other countries doing that. Yeah, we're very slow, very slow on it. And I blame in part FDA. And there's a lot of controversy at FDA right now. The Reagan Udall Foundation, which is the foundation for the FDA, just issued a report lambasting how the FDA operates. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to see a new body emerge that is just about human food, because the FDA mostly cares about drugs and being able to test drugs and so on. And when it comes to food and food recalls, they've done a horrible job. And I think that over the next year, probably two years, that's going to change dramatically. Frank Yanis, who's a friend who really created blockchain with IBM and Walmart, he was one of the heads over at Walmart, went to FDA for a period of about three years. He just resigned at the end of February. And the reason he resigned is, frankly, and this is public, this was in his resignation letter, it just doesn't operate very well. There's cross-functionalities that get in the way. And frankly, when we look at labeling, they've spent millions of dollars on this healthy label that they want to put out on products. Well, Everything isn't as easy as just putting a healthy label. What you've really got to do if you want to be effective is you've got to look at category by category and really come up with different health criteria based on category. So what we know is that olive oil is really good for us. Well, under their auspices, oil is 100% fat. So olive oil, even though we know it's healthy, it's good for our heart and so on, would not be able to have that word and that logo healthy on its label. So those are the kinds of issues that we really need to get in front of and have the FDA get much smarter about. And I certainly hope that you're right, Phil, about this happening sooner rather than later. The other thing that's so great about what you're saying is we like to have looking forward focusing globally because you know what? I'm not telling you something you don't know. Sometimes the United States is not the leader. Correct. Sometimes we are the laggard and others are setting the pace. And you see that I'm sure often in your industries that you're working in. Absolutely. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about looking forward opportunities for job, career, business, and investment seekers. 
And hey, if you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or maybe even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers. Phil, looking forward is certainly about trends, but it's even more about opportunities. When I think about what you were saying earlier, which is all these jobs that aren't there anymore because people don't want to do them anymore, because maybe AI can now take care of them. I'm wondering if this is going to be a blessing and a curse question to ask you, but where do you see opportunities for any of these distinct groups? Job and career seekers, entrepreneurs, freelancers, small businesses, or investors. Doesn't have to be all of them, Phil, but where do you see some really good opportunities for any of those groups? Well, I think for all the groups is going to be critical. If we take a look right now in fast food, when you go through a drive through of a fast food at McDonald's, Chipotle, Domino's, Wingstop, and a couple others, it's not a human being that is taking your order. That's an AI robot. And it's being done for two reasons, as you pointed out. Nobody wants those jobs anymore. And number two, it's much more efficient. You have less errors when you have a robot doing it. Mm. So I think that when I look at AI and robotics in, in just about every industry, we're going to see huge inroads and huge opportunities there. Walmart. Amazon, everybody is laying off tens of thousands of people. Well, the opportunity for those people are to get retrained, if you would, into what the future forward looks like. What are those jobs? And it's not that difficult to have a lens to see what kind of jobs are going to be important in the future. We know healthcare. We know with the aging of America, and you and I have talked about this for decades, there's a lot more opportunities for nurses, for doctors, for technology to take place in healthcare. We're going to see that continue to rise. We're also going to see a lot more opportunities as it relates to transportation. And I'm not talking about that long haul trucking, but if we take a look at those little motor scooters that the birds and whatever are all over the place, we're going to continue to see more of that. We're starting to see an evolution of what's called the 15-minute city. And best example of that is Paris, France, where everything is walkable, where we're starting to see new communities. And we're seeing it here. Detroit is trying some things out. Other cities here where people are going to live and work within 15 minutes of everything so that they don't have to have cars. So if you're a small business owner, what can you do in a 15-minute city environment and have a shop. Supermarkets, which is my love and my world, 
Supermarkets are not going to be 40,000 square foot. I'm going to walk to a store within 15 minutes and maybe there's a butcher store. Maybe there's a flower store. Maybe there's a cheese store. And really go back probably 100 years to the way our grandparents used to shop. I think those are going to be some big opportunities for us all. Very interesting stuff, Phil. That reference to going back 100 years, it's almost hard to believe that we might have the local butcher shop again, but you're talking about it. Looking at your industries, and I'm separating them maybe arbitrarily here, food manufacturing, food retailing. You talked about AI and robots, and you said, it's not hard to see there are going to be opportunities. So I'm wondering in your space, what kind of training would somebody need to tap into those opportunities? And what about opportunities to produce new kinds of foods, new kinds of brands, new kinds of markets, you know, new kinds of transportation, whatever? Where would you advise somebody, whether they're a younger person, they're going to your alma mater, Drexel University, trying to figure out what they major in, or somebody said, had it with whatever industry I'm in, or they were displaced, I need to find something new, or somebody with an entrepreneurial bent. What would you tell them? Well, you bring up Drexel. Drexel has a great part of it called Drexel Food Lab. And what you do is you have students who are working on creating new foods. We've seen a lot of plant-based foods really come on the market in the past couple of years. It started before the pandemic. We're seeing a lot more cellular agriculture. We're also seeing a lot more entrepreneurs getting into the food world that have nothing to do with food. What used to be is, oh, I had my great-grandmother's recipe for ketchup, so I came up with this ketchup, and here I am. Well, now we're starting to see cross-functionality between engineers, technology people, putting their spin on food. That's what we're seeing with a lot of the plant-based, a lot of the cellular agriculture. We're seeing these scientists, if you would, really running these major food companies. So it's not about the discipline that you might have. It's how you're thinking about the world. And I also would suggest that probably for me, the best laboratory is a supermarket where you could walk in and you could look around at all the products that are there and finding out where the holes are, what consumers really want, because what we're going to do is we're going to see a shakeout. Do we really need a hundred different brands of olive oil? for example, when it's basically all the same. And we look at a retailer like Aldi, who has four kinds of olive oil. They've got an organic, they've got an extra virgin, they've got a general purpose, and they have an imported olive oil. And millennials and Generation Z love shopping for Aldi because of their high quality of their store brands and their cheap prices. We just have to be aware of the world around us to really seek out those opportunities and then learn. I was talking to, back probably five or six years ago, the person who started Instacart and came from Facebook first. That was his first job. And then he did 20 different startups and Instacart finally hit. Mm. But he had 20 failures before he did it. And he was not a food guy. His homework was going to every symposium that he could on how to raise money, how to run a business, just capturing all that information that he needed in order to be successful. And I think that's what we have to do. And it's a constant path. 
but you can't just wake up and say, okay, I have to stop learning. I can't learn anything <laughs> anymore. We have to right. learn new things every single day. And for me, it's really looking at consumers, looking at retailers, looking at brands, what they're all doing, and trying to figure out what are those opportunities that they're not satisfying now. You brought up local. There's a lot of local companies that are very happy not selling the Walmart to the world, but just selling the 200 supermarkets that are in their local environment. And you can have a really good business that way. And you don't need to have 100 employees or 200 employees. You don't have to manufacture everything yourself. You can have it co-packed. So number one training is look around at people, look around at things, look around at retailers and brands. That's where you're going to find the opportunities. And then when you hone in on that opportunity, then look to see what you need to do in order to capture that opportunity. Very good information, Phil. I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in the future. And I'm only going to ask you about the rest of this decade. There are a few trends that are out there. You've alluded to some. Certainly, plant-based eating is one of them. Synthetics, getting more involved in some of this food production. Another one What we both know is we've got not just in the United States, but certainly in many developed countries, an aging population. We've got so many more single people than we've ever had. I don't want to lead you along with this, but what are you seeing at least through the rest of this decade in terms of how things might evolve with food retailing and manufacturing? Well, I see smaller stores, no question about it. I love the model that Grocery Outlet has. And Grocery Outlet is a chain that started in Emeryville, California. It operates similar to the way a dollar store does. It's opportunistic buying so that they can buy run of a cereal that's being discontinued from someone. And then they'll find some other product to replace that. But the model that they have for business is really smart. Each store is individually owned by somebody local. And it's usually family run where you've got two or three or four family members running that store. And what the chain does is they handle the advertising. They handle the buying, but it's up to you of what you want to put in your store. They handle distribution, but it's really moving back to locally owned stores. And I don't think that there's one grocery outlet that or a couple grocery outlets that's owned by one person. Typically, it's one family that owns one store. So I see us going back to that model versus the chain. I think that when we start to see the Kroger-Albertsons deal go through, and they're going to have to divest probably about a 1,000 stores, some of them will be picked up by the likes of Amazon, who has lots of cash. But I also think that you're going to see a lot of individual stores that are, again, family-run. Going back to that model, I think from a manufacturing standpoint, same thing, smaller manufacturers that are just dealing in a smaller area and that are specialists. The days of General Foods and Procter & Gamble running all these huge food companies, that's over. It's Jeff and Phil's barbecue sauce (laughs) that we make ourselves. I think that's going to be the path that we're going to see. And I think a lot of it is being driven, frankly, from what we've gone through with the pandemic. People are more nervous 
than ever before. We see it, the anxiety levels are higher than ever before. And what we need to do is we need to get back to basics. And the only way we're going to be able to achieve that is, again, getting back to that whole community feeling and taking care of each other. Wow, Phil, that's almost a 180. And it sounds like you're seeing the beginnings of that already in motion. Absolutely. Phil, you gave our listeners already a few good tips. Is there anything else that you would like to advise them? I'm speaking about the person who's looking for a new job, a new career, an entrepreneur, an investor, small business, anything else you would add in terms of guidance? The only guidance is don't get stuck in a lane. Just because you've worked for a food company for 20 or 30 or 40 years doesn't mean that you have to go work for another food company. Take whatever discipline and intellect that you've got and bring it into a new category. You know, I mentioned Erwan. Tony Antaki had a distribution company. He was never a food retailer. He was in on the food service side. And then when he sold that business, he had a non-compete and he said, oh, well, what am I going to do with my life? And he bought one Erwan store and now he's up to 10 and is really rocking it as it relates to Southern California. Don't get stuck in your lane. Think broader, think smarter. And always, as Jeff knows, probably better than anyone else, take chances. What's the worst thing that can happen? You fail. And then you get up and you do it again. And I think that's the only words of wisdom that I could share. Well, they're good words of wisdom, Phil. They make a lot of sense. And it also reminds me of something that I know at least a couple of guests had said on this show, which is get a good liberal arts education because it opens you up to thinking maybe more laterally and being open to get out of the lane that you're talking about people might get stuck in. Phil, this has been terrific as usual. I'm not surprised. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you? The supermarket guru, I should have said that, but we'll definitely say it in the show notes. Your podcast, your publications, you got books, and whatever else you'd like to tell people about. Yeah, it's real simple. It's all housed at supermarketguru.com. And across the top are our webcasts and podcasts. And always feel free to email me, Phil, at supermarketguru.com. And I'm happy to help wherever I can. Thanks, Phil. And he truly is the supermarket guru, people. Phil, it's been great having you on the show again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Looking Forward or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.